Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this weed. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just Beaming at I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. You know, I have to pinch myself often when, in the pursuit of conversations, I receive the opportunity to access some of our great artists and creatives. The elders of the theatre possess such a wealth of knowledge and experience. It's so humbling and vital that we hear their stories. Recently, I had the privilege of talking to maestro Richard Bonning. I spoke to him via Zoom in Switzerland, where he resides in Chalet Monet, the home he shared with his wife, Dame Joan Sutherland. At age 92, Richard has lost none of his passion for making music, and he shares with us a vast knowledge of operatic and ballet repertoire. It's an inspiring conversation, and it was a privilege to chat with the great man. Uh, Mr. Richard Bonning, good morning to you and, and, and good evening from me uh, from your home in Switzerland at uh, Chalet Monet above Lake Geneva. Yes, good evening. <laughs> what's, what's the weather like outside your window? Very cold, snowy morning. It's freezing. It's a lot of snow and it's very cold out. You I stay inside. <laughs> <laughs> you were home for Christmas, of course. Um, the quite extremes of weather. The, the the heat of summer in Sydney and then um and then back at home. Oh, I noticed the difference. The day I came home was the first great huge fall of snow on the seventeenth of January, and it's still snowing. It's very very bad. It's very long, really. Very beautiful, of course. <laughs> Now, Mr. Bonning, in my research, you might be able to clarify for me, I've come across two locations in which you were born. One says Epping and one says Bondi. No, I, I was not born in Epping. I was born in Bondi. Was, was it a childhood of uh, surf and sand for you? Oh, very much so. I, I, I was born just on top of the uh, beach at Tamarama, which is uh, between Bondi and Bronte. And so on, one was constantly in the water. <laughs> <laughs> a lovely location indeed. Um, I assume you grew up in a, a musical household. Not particularly, no. My parents were very encouraging and lo lovely, but, and I was very lucky. But uh, I, I, I wasn't a very musical uh, household, of course. <clears throat> when in the evenings, no television, we often gathered around the piano at my aunts and uncles and whatnot and cousins and, and and they sang a lot and I used to accompany them at the piano from it's, I don't know what age but a pretty early age. <laughs> it, it seemed to be a staple of every household wasn't it a, a piano in uh, in every living room? 
Oh, very much so. I, I could, I, if I could hear anything in my head, I could play it on the piano. So, what were the artistic influences? Did did your parents play um, long playing records at the time, or were you taken to the theatre and concerts? They did, yes. They they, they had quite a, f a few, and and my father played piano really very well, although he he never had a lesson in his life. But again, his ear was very good, and if he he could, could hear it in his head, he could play it. What was your first experience of of live performance, and what did that feel like? Was it a concert or the theatre? Oh, I don't. I have no idea. I don't remember. It's so long ago. <laughs> I, I liked. I liked playing in public. I, I enjoyed it when I was when I was young. I had no nerves at all, and I thought it was great fun. The, the nerves came later, unfortunately. You went to Sydney Boys High School. What was the musical education like at that time when you were at high school? We had a, um, a music teacher who had a, a lovely session once a week with us and, and taught us a lot about classical music. He, he, was, he was tremendous help to us all. So you, you cultivated a career, of course, which was all about music. Why do you think music is such a cultural necessity for, for us? Don't ask me. I don't know. Music was my life, and uh, I, I find it life without music would be a very dull life. Everybody does not feel the same way, obviously, but uh, I, I live on my instincts, and, and uh, music for me was everything. Do you um, have a favourite genre of music that you like listening to? I enjoy listening to um, piano music, especially piano and orchestral music. All the concertos, I love to listen to. I like to listen to a lot of Mozart piano music, Chopin, Liszt. I don't many... have as much time to listen as I used to, although now lately with the COVID, one's had much more time to listen to things. <laughs> it's just been in, in a great joy in many ways. Uh, you've captured many great uh, works in your recording career, opera and ballet scores. Are you able to listen to your recordings without being too critical? You know, like a singer may uh, not enjoy listening to themselves? Well, I, first of all, I don't listen to my own recordings. When, once they've, they've been made, they're done and they're, I'm finished with them. Once in a while, if I hear something, I like it or I don't like it. I mean sometimes if one had the chance to do things again one might do them differently but when one does everything one can at, at a given time I always enjoyed recording very much who were um your first first teachers your your great mentors who do you consider to be um Lindy Evans helped me a great deal the Australian composer he, he was very very good to me very kind very patient and then, of course, I went to, to to London and I worked with Herbert Fryer, who was a pupil of Buzzoni, and he was quite extraordinary, a wonderful, wonderful man. He helped me a great deal, helped me to appreciate romantic music. Not that I needed help in many ways, but he, he taught me a lot about it, and, and uh, I, I adored him. I thought he was a wonderful man. Uh, learning an instrument, well, any instrument re requires a great deal of, of discipline. Were you a disciplined student? You'd have to be, wouldn't you? I was not a disciplined student. No, at the really? beginning, I had to be forced to forced to read because my ears were to, were took over, and I played everything you know as I heard. 
noodle as I wanted to play it instead of literally reading everything off the page. But I soon learned that it was it was it was hard, and uh, <clears throat> I, I learned to read. But when I started to conduct, I had to really read and learn different clefs and and uh, how to transpose and whatnot. It all, all took time, but uh, it all happened. Who were your musical heroes at that time? Um, well, I used to go to concerts all the time in Sydney in the 40s, all right through the 40s. And uh, there was a young Israeli pianist called Penina Salzman, who I think she played in Sydney in those days, in the town hall. She gave about 10 or 12 concerts in one season, all sold out. That's an unheard of thing today. It wouldn't happen anymore. She was a wonderful pianist. I loved her. And uh, oh, there were many, many, many great pianists came and and conductors and violinists. I don't know that I especially liked one more than another. Well, I did, I suppose, but I don't know. I forget all the names now. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably. Did you play any other instruments other than the piano? I studied the cello for a bit, but, you know, I had no, no, uh, I was no good at it, put it that way. Piano came very easily to me. I just, it, it all happened. I didn't have to work very, very hard, not at the beginning at any rate. But the cello, I never seemed to be able to conquer. And uh, I, after a while, I gave it up. And uh, that was that. I love the cello, and I'm glad I did try to learn, but I wish I could have played better. <laughs> what about the voice? Did you ever sing in any choirs or solo? Um, well, I used to sing all the time for myself. I went on singing too long, probably. But uh, no, I, I, and as I said, when my voice broke, it was a very uninteresting sound, not a good sound at all. So I know I... I I learned how to sing, but I don't think I was very good. In fact, I know I wasn't. <laughs> uh, in your career, you played in uh, the great theatres and, and famous houses all around the world. Are there any that you, you missed out on that you would like to have played? No, but I don't regret anything. I think regrets are a waste of time. I, I, I played in so many of the great, great theatres. I mean, the wonderful theatre in, in Buenos Aires, fantastic theatre, one of the best acoustics in the world, Naples. I love Naples very much. And, of course, Covent Garden was, was a, a wonderful, wonderful place. I always loved there, and the Metropolitan Opera. So many. It also, it depends on who one worked with. You know? That made all the difference, no matter where you were. As we enter the foyer of the, the Opera Theatre at the Sydney Opera House, we're, we're greeted with Judy Kassab's portrait of Dame Joan Sutherland in uh, a Lakme headdress and, and robe. It's a very imposing painting and it reminds us of the, of the power of performance. What do, You've entered that foyer many, many times. What are your feelings? What do you experience when you see that portrait? Well, first of all, so you, I only see it when you go to a performance. I like it very much. It's, 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 I think it's right that it should be there. I, li I liked working in the Opera House in Sydney, not because of the house itself, because it was, I think, very, very poor acoustics, especially for the orchestra. 
but I liked the people I worked with, and that made all the difference. It was, in the days I was there, it was like, like a family, the company. There were 36 people on contract of, of solo singers and then the whole, whole orchestra and, and chorus for the whole year. One knew them all, and they, many of them became clo close friends, and those that are still alive are still close friends. Unfortunately, when you get old, you learn to lose a lot of people. Is that difficult, getting older and, and, and losing your, your peers and your, your friends? It's, no, it's not difficult. I don't mind getting older. I don't even feel old most of the time. But uh, the, the, the sad thing is that you do lose people that you're very fond of. It's something you have to accept, and that, that's that. It's life. Yeah, I'm, that doesn't that doesn't bother me. I don't I don't even think about it very much. But I'm just certainly not frightened of death. Or, I suppose it'll come one of these days. Who knows? Might come tomorrow. Might be five years. <laughs> <laughs> Your grandfather lived to ninety six, I believe. So you've got good genes. My my um, <coughs> great grandfather. Yes, he lived till ninety six. His sister till 95, another great-grandfather till 91. So there's a little bit of, of age in the family. Yourself and Dame Joan Sutherland pro could probably be rightly called the parents of opera in Australia because it was 1965 where you really established an, an operatic presence in Australia with uh, the Southern Williamson Grand Opera Company tour around Australia, and you were musical director. Can you tell us a bit about that particular tour and how that evolved and happened? Well, the, the 1965 tour, of course, Australia was at the, that time without a great deal of classical music, or certainly without a great deal of opera, should I say. And um, Sir Frank Tate of the the, the um, Tate brothers, the J.C. Williamson's, the great big um, theatre people in Australia, he came to London and he came to see us and he said, you know, I began my career as a young man with the Melbourne tour called the, the Melbourne Williamson Company in Sydney, in the 20s, I think it was. And he said, I'd like to end it. He was a very old man by then, well in his 80s. Um, he said, I'd like to, to have a, a Sutherland Williamson tour. And he asked me, would I, could I put together a company with that in mind. <clears throat> well, of course, I was very happy to do so. And as I had worked with so many interesting singers by that time, I was I, I approached many of them, and, and they all, were all very happy to come to Australia. And we, we did a tour of, of 13 weeks, and we played eight sh shows a week, seven different operas, and it was an, an amazing success. Um, in many ways, my greatest memory of my old career, I suppose. But it, it, it was a, a big a big success, and the public loved it. They used to sleep in the street all night so that they could get tickets. Joan sang Similamid in Sonnambula and Traviata and Lucia. And, and uh, Lucia, Luciano, who was a very young man, and just beginning his career, he came with us. John Alexander, who was the first tenor at the Met, came with us. And we, we had a, a really great company. It was it was a, a wonderful period, a wonderful memory I have. I imagine you had a hand in um, defining the repertoire for that season also. Oh, well, very much so, because uh, Sir Frank 
would have liked us to do Tosca and, and uh, Boam and Carmen and, and all, all the, the, the sure sellers. Uh, but of course, we were more interested in doing repertoire that we thought was of interest and, and uh, certainly for, for Joan to do the pieces in which she excelled. Well, she excelled in most of the repertoire she did because she was very careful to sing only the things that were right for her. Um, it, the very interesting thing was that, from a, a public point of view, the great successes were Sonamla and Semiramide, which were completely unknown in, in Australia at that time and were probably the first performances, that, certainly this century, which was, after all, had been very dead in the field of bel canto. The, the 19th century was, was very interesting. The end of the 19th century, there's a lot of opera in Australia. Many of the great operas, of course, are written in the 18th and 19th centuries, and they're bounded by a particular time frame and historical influences that um, require an understanding of style. They're, they're very much melodramas, I guess, set, set to music. Do you think that that those operas can be taken and and reshaped and redefined for a for a contemporary audience. I see no reason whatever to rediscover, re re reshape, or redefine. They are great works of art, and they must be considered and dealt with as great works of art. And you must to do them properly. You have to realize what did the composer mean? What did he want? And you have to try to do that to, and to change the libretto and the story and the period this is nonsense. I mean, something like they always update it, very often update something like Traviata. It's nonsense because the story doesn't work when it's updated. It belongs in its period. The operas all belong in their periods. And they have to be treated with respect and love. In your opinion, what defines a great opera? Well, first of all, it has to be great musically, because this is music. It's one of the greatest forms of music. If you have to have, you have to have singers with great voices, great musicality, great techniques. If you want to, if you really want to make it great, and that's that's pretty rare these days. But now it's come getting rarer and rarer. I'm sorry to say, but there we are. No, I, I we had very good days in the. 60s and 70s, and uh, even 80s, I guess. And uh, I was very lucky to be able to work with many of the greatest singers of the day. And they were great, some of them, Tebaldi and Gabalier and Siepi and Bakke. There were so, so many wonderful singers. And when, it was a very great life. And in Australia, when we built the company up, we had a lot of important singers there, the best of the Australian singers, the very best. And there were some very great ones in those days who had big careers in the Met and Covent Garden and other, and other European houses. You also worked with um, Eugene Goosens, who was a, a formative influence on the, the musical life of Sydney at the helm of both the Conservatorium. Eugene and... Goosens, when, when Eugene Goosens came to Sydney, when he came to Sydney, it was a, a shot in the arm for music in Australia. He was a very great musician, but he was also a quite wonderful man. He cared about the people he worked with, and he was wonderful to us as students. I was in his diploma class for a couple of years, and 
and he really encouraged us and we, we adored him. We thought he was a wonderful, wonderful man. And what happened to him in Sydney was a very great tragedy. We, we saw him after he'd gone left and gone to Europe. And uh, it was, it was, that was very, very sad. Australia destroyed, destroyed him after the, he had created them in many, musically in many ways. That was an unforgivable sin, and that's that. What was it like uh, being a boy from Bondi going off to, to London, you know, when you got your scholarship to the Royal College of Music? Was that a daunting experience, leaving home and um, travelling to a place that you hadn't necessarily been? Oh, no, I was, I was thrilled. I was thrilled to be to go to London. I, I loved the trip over. It was, I, I was only growing up. I was only 19, and I was a young 19 at that. I'd had a lot of musical experience. So I actually played concertos with with the Eugene Goosens and and several other conductors in Australia, and I'd had done lots of uh, public playing. So I I went to London and uh, I don't know I was not treated as anything special at the college. I didn't like it very much, and I I went to Herbert Fryer. Some great friends. Um, paid for a lesson for me with Herbert Fry, and he was the most wonderful man, wonderful, wonderful musician. And, and uh, he helped and encouraged me and, uh, and made me really love music, although I would really loved it. When I was growing up, I mean, it was all Mozart and Chopin for me. But I learned there was a lot of wonderful romantic music, especially this, well, the whole of the 19th century, really. Unfortunately, it hasn't continued too much into the 20th century, but there we are. I came across a, a quote of yours in which you say, I firmly believe that great singing is an instinct that you are either born with or are able to develop. But I don't think it's anything that you can learn intellectually. I think it's something you have to assimilate. It's something you have to feel. What is great singing, in your opinion? Well... Uh, it's making great music with the voice, which is the most beautiful instrument in the world when it's when it is really good. <clears throat> but so many singers, when 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 they're born naturally, the voice of works quite decently for a year, a few years. But uh, if they don't learn to create a great technique for that voice, then the voice. It refuses to work properly. You can't do what you want musically if you don't have a great technique. And the voice won't last if you don't learn to sing correctly. You should be able to sing all day long. You should. But, but very few people are able to, 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 <clears throat> to control their voice in such a way as they can do that. I mean, it's all, it all has to do with the breath. You have to learn to breathe properly and support your voice properly. That's, I don't think you can learn it from reading a book. I think it's something you have to, if you have the, the instinct, that is the most important thing in the world. I think instincts are the most important things that you can ever have. Um, once you learn or feel how to sing and remember the in, the feelings that you have as you sing, then that's the beginning, beginning of everything. But a, a singer, they don't hear themselves as we hear them. I think they need somebody to listen to them. But on the other hand, they 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 learn to feel how they they are singing, and uh, 
it's not easy to talk about singing. I find it's not easy to talk about music. There are things you feel instinctively. And if once you learn to feel them and remember the sensations that you feel, then you're on the way. But you, I think a musician has to be very, very critical of themselves and not, not be satisfied with their performance ever. You have to work and work. And, and after all, it's not how you feel yourself, it's how you make people feel, how you make the public feel. You have to identify yourself with the public. And, and, and if, if a public goes to a theatre and they don't really feel something, then, then nothing is happening. You're not doing it right. Are there composers that wrote more effectively for the voice than others? Well, definitely, yes. Bellini wrote wonderfully for the voice, extraordinarily well for the voice. Massenet wrote very beautifully for the voice. Mozart is sometimes difficult for the voice, but wonderfully written. And uh, Puccini wrote wonderfully for the voice, although he made it sometimes a little difficult by, by having a, a stronger, over-strong orchestras occasionally which is all right if you've got this technique to, to sing with them. I always say to singers, don't ever try to make war with an orchestra. If the orchestra plays too loudly for you, let them get on with it. You have to sing with your voice and never, never, never force the sound, ever. Because the more you force, it may sound louder to you in your head. It's not louder to the public, only uglier. And what we want in singing is beautiful sounds. We're always beautiful, wonderful sounds. And that should go right and touch the heart. Um, of course, we don't have recording devices which existed 200 years ago. Are there any records, written or otherwise, that can tell us what those voices sounded like when they sung the original works of uh, Puccini or, or Mozart or Massenet? We just have to use our imagination really one reads a lot about it and what was said about it and uh, one hopes that one can understand up to a point i mean the early recordings a lot of them don't do justice to voices but if you listen to somebody like tetrazzini the old very old early records they're wonderful the sound of a voice is fantastic the technique is fantastic I think there were very many great singers in the past, but there were probably very many awful singers as well. I don't, I don't think the world has changed in that respect. But I think um, singers were brought up technically more strongly in the past. I mean, Rossini said it took seven years to make a singer, and I don't think Rossini was a fool. <laughs> He, he, he wrote wonderfully for the voice. You ask him who wrote well for the voice. Of course, Rossini was one of them. Um, uh, but, but singers trained in those days. Today, a singer starts to sing and they have a nice sound and they're, they're thrown by theatre management into the heavy roles or into roles which they're not ready for. <laughs> After all, you, 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 you just can't get up and sing an opera like that takes long work and long understanding. Joan always said to me, I don't even feel I'm beginning to, to sing an opera well until I've done at least 10 performances. 
And then after the, after several years of singing the same piece, you begin to feel it's part of you, and then and then and then it, and then, and then it really becomes alive. But it's not something that just happens. And then so many people with the television today, they think, oh, it all just happens. Well, it happens, but in the wrong way. Uh, singers in opera are, are portraying characters. They're, they're also required to act as as well as being authentic in their interpretation of the score. <clears throat> well, of um, course, I mean, this is a whole musical, theatrical experience of the opera. You should be able to act extremely well, but that doesn't mean throwing yourself all over the place. I mean, Flagstad was a wonderful actress. She didn't move a lot, but she acted with her body, her heart, her soul, her voice, and that when it was really meaningful. But uh, today, a lot of the directors think they have to be keep on doing things and people running around the stage and God doing God knows what. And the singing always suffers. Because today, most so many of the theatres, they think about doing great productions, but they don't think about making great music or presenting great, great singers. And that's the trouble with opera today. It was wonderful to see um, Dame Joan flex her acting muscle in the film of uh, Dad and Dave on our selection, where she played Ma Rudd. Uh, how did that come about? She, did she really want to prove that she had some acting chops uh, after retirement? Oh, I think the, the director of the, <clears throat> the theatre admired her very much. And when she retired, he he asked her, would you play the part in the film? At first, I mean, I don't think she was very enthusiastic, but then she said, well, yes, I'll try. And I think she quite enjoyed doing it. It was, it was, it was something different for her. But Joan, I mean, when she was a young girl, she was not an actress. She didn't, she didn't understand the theatre very much. So when she first began, the voice was lovely, but there were not an enormous amount happened in the first year or two. But then as she grew into the theatre, she became the parts she was singing. I mean, if you were, if you see her as Mary Stewart in Donizetti, Mary Stewart, it's absolutely moving. And, and, and uh, Joan was a sort of singer who could grow in a role. She always grew and the roles got better and better and better. And by the time we got to the climax of the opera, it was, became sensational because she knew how to sing. She knew how to hold her voice in great, oh, how, how do I put it? She kept her voice in, in great order and, and she had more voice than ever at the end of the opera, whereas 60% of the singers or much more actually that sing by the end of the opera, they're tired and they get, and they and it sounds in the voice. They, they don't have it. I mean, no, Joan, Joan learned to, to sing beautifully, but she also learned to feel. She felt the character she was singing. She had a good sense of humour. So in things like Fled of Mouse or the <clears throat> Daughter of the Regiment, she was very amusing. And, and and the Merry Widow, and she enjoyed doing those. But then she was also enjoyed the great tragedies. And she was she was quite wonderful in in in, in portraying the, the, the sufferings of, of many of these great divas. Mr. Bonning, you've conducted opera, you've conducted ballet. Did, did you ever have any forays into the musical theatre? Not really, no. Except that uh, 
opera is musical theatre. Indeed, indeed, from it is. From that point of view, yes. <laughs> I, I believe you visited Broadway a, a couple of times. You went to see um, Hello, Dolly, starring Carol Channing in that original production. And, um... Oh, I often went when I was in America. I went to Broadway, Broadway all the time. So I saw many, many wonderful shows. Uh -huh. I saw Hello, Dolly. Oh, yeah, many times. I saw Annie quite recently with, with Anthony Warlow, who was the Australian... Uh, Boy, it was wonderful, and it's really wonderful. In New York, yes, and of course. Broadway, that's best, is great, especially in the musicals. I heard Carol Channing may have changed some of the lyrics uh, on a night that you appeared to say, hello, Ricky, hello, Joni. Uh, Does that ring a bell? Can you tell me about that? No, she said, hello, Joni, hello, Adam. Hello, Joni. Hello, Adam. And Adam says, Mummy, she knows we're here. <laughs> Even as a kid. It was, it was a lovely experience. She was, she was a lovely, warm lady. Marvelous, wonderful, wonderful performer. Uh, Franco Zeffirelli, um, through these conversations, we can have a bit of six degrees of separation and, and ask you about these uh, great practitioners. What was Mr. Zeffirelli like to work with? Because you worked with him many times. He was the best. I mean, he, he understood music, he understood singers, he understood the theatre. I mean, he was in, in the theatre, he was able to do everything. He could almost make costumes, he could paint the scenery, he could, he, he could show the actors and actresses what they were to, what he wanted them to do, but in the kindest and one most wonderful way. He infused the cast and he was, he was wonderful to work with. I've never met anybody who didn't love working with Zeffirelli. And his films too, they're quite extraordinary. Brilliant, brilliant man. Came a very great friend to us. As did uh, uh, Mr. Coward. Noel Coward was your neighbour for many, many years. What was it like living oh, next no, door to him? Well, we were so, so like, I mean, we, we bought this house because of Noel. Who, we, we met him on, on the ship going to in the states and uh, <clears throat> we we were we, at that time we had to leave our house in the south of switzerland and um he said oh come and stay with me and i'll drive you around we'll find another house in in somewhere where it's really good for you for traveling so i i, I stayed in for about seven or eight days and he drove me all over the place and we we didn't find anything that we wanted and the day I was about to leave, I said, you know, now that what I like is the house above you on the mountain. It's all, it stands by itself. It's got the most fantastic position, wonderful, wonderful views. The house isn't a great one, but I, I think that's where I'd like to be, somewhere like that. And he said, well, who knows? I'll ring up and ask. And, and uh, he rang the house and he, it belonged to an old English gentleman, Will, in his 80s. He said, well, do you know, I think I'd like to go home and live in my own country, die in my own country. Um, I'll send the young man over and we'll talk. I went over and talked to him. He named a price which was so low for the house, I couldn't believe it. I questioned him. He said, oh, I remember what I paid for this house. And if I were to ask more, I'd feel dishonest. So we were very lucky. And then we, 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 we bought the house. We rebuilt it. And, and uh, we, we are absolutely bought all the land around. We're completely private. 
and uh, we love it. And to this day, I love it. And I, people say, why do you stay in Switzerland all alone? I said, because it's a wonderful place to be. I love to be it. I don't mind. I'm not lonely because I have so much to do. And, and uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a great place to be. Your ability to uh, unearth long-lost opera scores is legendary. When did you begin collecting? Well, I did. I collected a couple of things in Australia, but not very much. I remember I found a Puritani score in Sydney back in the late 40s. But <clears throat> when, when I came to London, it was full of old music shops, junk shops, and Paris even more so. And, I, and to hop, one could hop over from London to Paris for about seven pounds a turn and by air in those days, wow. And um, I used to go to all the shops right down by the scene. And they had opera scores galore and, and sheet music galore. And one could find, if one looked carefully, lots of autograph music. And I started finding all sorts of magnificent things for very, very little money. And I would be hardly able to walk back to my hotel carrying all the stuff. And, and uh, oh, it, it, was a, it was a great period for finding things all of the wonderful first edition 18th and 19th century scores and autographed scores and, and, and complete autographed operas. And, and uh, well, I, it, it became a habit with me. It was, I mean, collecting, it's a disease from which I suffer very much. And I, I love collecting. I still do, although I force myself not to buy things these days because I'm, my house is full and uh, I'm a bit, bit uh, I don't know how long I'll be here, so I, I try not to buy, but I love my collections and I have great fun and um, amusement with myself, just going through them, looking after them, putting them into order. And I keep finding things I've forgotten I had. So it's, it's a wonderful life here. I've been very lucky my whole life, very blessed. We've talked about teachers a couple of times during this conversation. Uh, you taught. Dame Joan a great deal. What did she teach you? I learned a lot about singing, a lot about music from her because she was born with great instincts, wonderful musical instincts. <clears throat> and occasionally I'd be doing something with her and she'd do it differently. And, and I'd think, well, what she's doing is better than what I'm asking her to do. And uh, no, I learned a lot, I learned a lot from her. I think I also was able to help her a great deal because she did not study music very thoroughly as a, as a young woman. And, uh, well, I, I was very much a theatre person. I was loved the theatre. And I, I did help her a lot. And I helped her, maybe in a way, to become a prima donna because she was a very, very laid-back Australian who didn't have any such ideas in her head at all. I think the only ambition she ever had, she thought she would like to sing at Covent Garden. But her idea of singing at Covent Garden would be just singing anything they asked her. Well, I, I listened to her voice very much. And I found that when Joan was singing in concerts, she was making short of creating a voice. When she sang at home without thinking about it, her voice was quite different and very much more beautiful. It took me for quite a while to persuade her that that was her real voice. And uh, 
in, in helping her to use her real voice, we discovered that she had far more notes than she thought. She had far, she had a wonderful technique because she already had a good, a fairly good coloratura technique, which she had learned with her mother when she was very young. But uh, no, I learned a lot from her and she learned a lot from me. And uh, we went along and did all things together. What a wonderful life. Well, Mr. Bonning, it's been wonderful catching up with you again. I, I know we've dined a couple of times at our, our hosts, Geraldine Turner and Brian Castles Onion, and I, I must thank Brian for connecting us uh, again today. It's been an absolute thrill and a privilege to chat with you today. So thank you for your time. Oh, very nice to see you again, Peter. It's been a long time, as you say. But uh, I'm sorry I wasn't available in, available in Sydney for a very good reason. <laughs> very good reason. Are you feeling, feeling tickety-boo again? Oh, I'm fine again. I was I was lucky. I mean, I wasn't really ill. I just was very tired all the time. But that's good. That's past now. I'm full of beans again. <laughs> that, that that's good. It's good to hear. It's been a, a very trying time. I hope I see you everyone. in Sydney next time I come. I hope so too. Thank you very much, Mr. Bonning. Good night. It was truly an honour to have access to Mr. Bonning and his wisdom garnered from a vast career in opera houses globally, along with his tremendous guidance of artists and preservation of a significant art form. He is certainly the father of opera in Australia. Thank you, Mr. Bonning, for your humility and considered responses. Stage's next guests are Stella Ginsberg and Rod Clark. They share stories and insight from a unique profession that of the scenic artist. They've been responsible for the vivid canvases you've seen on stages for several decades in operas, ballet, commercial musicals, Shakespeare and rock concerts. Sadly, it might very well be a disappearing theatrical craft as technology offers new ways to imitate illusion. It's a fascinating conversation and Stella and Rod are delightful. That's in episode 386 of the Stages podcast. I'm Peter Eyes. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.